Psalm 40. Let's begin in verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. And Lord Jesus, it is true. Your thoughts are too numerous to count. I I think, Lord, this is why we study through the word a verse at a time. Because there are too many thoughts to count. There are too many wonders to behold. There's just so much that you've done that we have to take this a verse at a time. This morning I ask, Spirit of the living God, that you would lead us a verse at a time through this psalm that we might recount your wonders and remember your thoughts toward us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Psalm 40 is a psalm of David. You know, one of the reasons that we know so much about an Israelite king from the Middle East of 3,000 years ago is David lived out loud. He lived life out loud, primarily through his songs. He, He didn't hold back his feelings, his thoughts. Even in the depth of sorrow or the height of his joy, David lived out loud. He was a musical external processor. Sharing his heart, putting it on the page. And so we read of his hopes and his joys and his struggles and his failures. We see his victories, his life experiences of all kinds, and they're revealed in the Psalms. As we've been talking about, David wrote over half of the Psalms that we know with some degree of certainty. And he just pours out his heart from the highs to the lows in these songs. So... We have a good sense of David. We have some idea of what made him tick and and how he thought and what he was about. But someone else is revealed in the Psalms as well, our Savior Messiah, Jesus Christ. Which is why we're going through these as Savior Psalms this summer, considering specifically those Psalms out of the 150 that speak of or are spoken by Yeshua, Jesus Now, I know someone could ask, and I have been asked this over the years, are we reading too much of Jesus into the Hebrew Scriptures? I mean, He doesn't really show up until the New Testament, right? After He was born. Are we reading too much of Jesus into these Psalms? (laughs) We've been at this a while. And if I've learned anything... You don't have to work at seeing Jesus in the entire Word of God. As a matter of fact, you almost have to work not to see Jesus. You have to try hard to avoid seeing Jesus. He is there. He is here. He is the Word. Right? John said in John chapter 1, familiar to many of you, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. that clear enough for you? And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. I love what John says in verse 9. He says, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. And if the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms of the Hebrew Bible are enlightened, it's because Christ the Word is here. Jesus brings enlightenment. Jesus brings, as we talked about for the last nine months prior to this, revelation. Jesus opens eyes, gives clarity and understanding. The world doesn't get that. The darkness doesn't comprehend that. But if you want to know what's going on, if you want to see clearly, if you want to have a true sense 
of what God is about in this world, you will get that through Jesus who brings enlightenment. Do you want to be enlightened? Some of you are in the dark. I don't mean you know that as a negative. I mean, sometimes we get in the dark about certain situations in our lives. I'm not sure which way to go, Lord. I feel in the dark on this one. I don't have clarity. I'm lacking understanding, Father. Where do I go? If you want to be enlightened, especially internally, eternally, listen up. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You leave Jesus out, and you will be left out in the dark. You will not see clearly. But you receive Jesus. You follow Jesus. You listen to Jesus. And you will be enlightened. We've already seen Him now in the Savior Psalms as the Savior begotten, Psalm 2. Or the Savior majestic, Psalm 8. The Savior praying in the garden, Psalm 16. The Savior of the cross, Psalm 22, the Savior Shepherd, Psalm 23, the Savior King, Psalm 24, and we're just getting started. In fact, the Psalms that we've covered so far are a little more obvious. Some of the ones we're about to get into over the next few weeks are a bit less obvious, but no less profound, no less important. So again, you don't have to go looking for someone who's already here. It's kind of like Cheryl in my house. I find that I'm looking for her all the time. But she's always there. I just got to find her. She's there somewhere. But no one disappears faster than my wife. And then reappears, you know, miraculously. You don't have to look for someone who's already here. Now, now David wrote Psalm 40. We know this as the last of an expanding exposition. So let me back up a, a bit and give you a sense of where this psalm is coming from, at least from his human heart, why he wrote it in the first place. The exposition begins around Psalm 37, might include Psalm 36, but definitely Psalm 37, 38, 39, and 40 is a a book of Psalms together. they, They go together. Psalm 37 is what we could call a psalm of patient anticipation. If you look back at Psalm 37, verse 7, David writes, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. A psalm of patient anticipation, or what I like to call the psalm of do not fret. Because he says it three times in the psalm. Don't fret. Don't worry. Wait on the Lord. Be patient for the Lord. That's Psalm 37. Where David almost is trying to convince himself not to fret. And not to worry. You ever do that? It's going to be okay. Just hold on. I'm going to make it through. Psalm 38 is then a psalm of penitent agony. In Psalm 38, David is now suffering from intense guilt and a painful illness. And we don't know exactly what that illness is, but some of the language suggests, and I just got to tell you, a sexually transmitted disease, perhaps. Psalm 38, verse 7, he writes, For my loins are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. And if you read through Psalm 38, there's a physical painful element and there's a spiritual painful element. And he's suffering with the intense agony of both a penitent agony as he confesses and pours out his heart before the Lord. And then you come to Psalm 39. After a psalm of calling for patient anticipation, and then a psalm of penitent agony. It's a psalm of precarious awareness. That is, in Psalm 39, still sick with fever, David begins to recognize the transience of life. Psalm 39, verse 3, he writes, My heart was hot within me while I was musing, the fire burned. And then I spoke with my tongue, 
Lord, make me to know the end, my end, and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Then he says, Selah. So think about that. (laughs) Process that for a moment. Every man at his best is a breath. Putting all this together, what we see in David's life is a long season of shame where he's struggling through and disease is, yes, part of this, but it's the spiritual side that is tearing him up. Shame and sickness for this king of Israel. But we come to Psalm 40 and it resolves altogether in a profound affirmation before circling back around to patient anticipation again. So Psalm 40 is a psalm of resolution. In this season of all the things that he's gone through, what he's learned, how he's been sanctified through it, it is a great psalm for dealing with guilt, shame, sickness, disease, whether the sickness and the disease are related to the guilt or shame or not, or whether it's completely separate. It's a great psalm when you feel like your life is just in the pits. Because in this sorrowful season... David gets one thing right. He keeps coming back to God. He comes back to God in his sickness. He comes back to God in his guilt. He comes back to God in his shame. He comes back to God in his sorrow. He just keeps turning it to the Lord, regardless of the condition of his body, of his heart, of his mind. He just keeps turning it around to the Lord. That's a key. You want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? It is not the condition of your life that does it. It's your turning to the Lord. It's the condition of your heart. That no matter what's going on, no matter what your failure, no matter what stupid thing maybe you did to get yourself there, you still turn to the Lord. In humility, you bring it before Him. And this is the great answer that we see really in the life of David. But what we see in these four or five psalms is he keeps just turning around. I failed here, I'm turning to the Lord. I'm in the pit here, I'm turning to the Lord. I feel awful here, I'm turning to the Lord. I don't understand this disease, I'm turning to the Lord. Man, that can apply to any one of us this morning. Just keep turning to the Lord. But what if he doesn't just keep turning to the Lord? Yeah, but you don't understand what I... Just keep turning to the Lord. He is gracious to save. Psalm 40. So let's look at it. It can be divided into three stanzas. And I'll give them to you right now so you can follow this through with me as we go. Verses 1 through 5 is the first stanza, what I'll call the wonders that lift. The wonders that lift. Verses 1 through 5. Stanza number 2. Verses 6 through 10. The word that lives. The word that lives. And then finally stanza number 3. Verses 11 through 17 closes out the waiting that lasts. So again, stanza 1, verses 1 through 5, the wonders that lift. Stanza 2, verses 6 through 10, the word that lives. And stanza 3, verses 11 through 17, the waiting that lasts. Stanza number 1, the wonders that lift. Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. I waited patiently. Patience is the fourth fruit of the Spirit. It is desirable. It is often longed for in our lives. It is prayed for, but of course we joke, don't pray for patience. Because you know what's going to happen. If you pray for patience, He's going to give you something to teach you patience. So don't pray for patience, whatever you do. I want patience, I just don't want to learn it. (laughs) I don't want to have to go through what I may have to go through. Here's the thing. Patience rarely, if ever, just drops into someone's heart. Patience is always developed. It's always grown in us and nurtured and cultivated and it does take us through seasons where we have to learn to be patient patient which is not something that is natural in any of us 
David says, I waited patiently for the Lord, but the word waited patiently. It's one word in the Hebrew. It's kava, which literally means I lie in wait. Or one translation says, I waited and I waited. No instant response. No instant resolution. I waited over time. It speaks of perseverance. It speaks of a long-suffering patience. Hanging in there, though nothing's changing. The sickness is getting no better, but I'm waiting patiently for the Lord. My sorrow has not lifted, but I am waiting patiently for the Lord. My circumstances are completely unchanged, but I waited patiently for the Lord. It is the same word that is used in Isaiah 40, verse 1, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. And you know, it is not the speed or the height. It's the endurance. I endured. I just waited for the Lord. I waited patiently. It's new strength. And it's strength whether you are flying or running or walking. It makes no difference. It's strength that comes from waiting for the Lord. In this case, David's in process. Through these four psalms, through this long season of sickness and self-reproach, before finally he arrives back at patience. He calls for patience in himself. Then he has to go through all of this, but then he arrives at patience and says, I waited. I waited. By the way, something else about patience. Patient endurance produces in us a potent resistance to sin. The more we learn to endure, whatever, again, the condition or the situation, the more we learn to endure as we wait for the Lord, the stronger we are against sin. Why is that? Because sin wants to be gratified right now. Sin always wants immediate gratification, immediate response. Have you recognized that? That if there's something that is tempting, it's tempting right now. You can't wait a month or a year for this thing to happen. You need it now. Sin always wants to be satisfied immediately. Which is why patience is such a godly virtue. Learning to say no to something. Learning to wait for something. Learning not to jump in with both feet, but to pause and to pray and to seek the Lord. Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 9, resist the devil firm in faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect and confirm and strengthen and establish you. And note that that, that David, David here said he inclined to me and he heard my cry he inclined to me and heard my cry literally he bent down to me and his attention was riveted i like the sound of that and that's that's what the language implies not that god just heard is that someone speaking there who 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 said something no it's he inclined he bent down like a father to a child in tears bent down got face to face and his attention is 100% He's riveted. Which tells me that God's rescue is always more intentional than my waiting. He is always looking to save. Desirous to step in. So David says, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction. Out of the miry clay. Literally the mud of the bog. He set my feet upon a rock. Making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God. Where is the deepest song of praise written? It's in the mud. It's in the suffering. It's in the stuck place. That's where the deepest and best worship comes from. Many of you are aware of the old hymn, When Peace Like a River which has moved countless thousands of people, multitudes of people, over the years since it was written. And it was written in the location on board a ship on the Atlantic where a wife and daughters were lost at sea. And the father and husband stopped 
had the boat stop out in the Atlantic and wrote, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever of my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. The best worship is written from those dark places. The highest notes of praise are inspired when the eyes can't see a thing. When all the eyes can see is darkness and yet the heart still believes. See, that's part of what Jesus was implying when He said in John 20, 29, Because you have seen Me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Now He's speaking, I believe, about the church there. He's speaking about an entire season or age of people that would believe in Him without seeing physically. Blessed are those who believe Though they have not seen, but there's also a truism here for you and for me. That you are more blessed when you believe God without seeing what He's doing. You are more blessed when you trust the Lord and you have no idea what He's up to. But you trust Him anyway. And songs of praise rise out of that. And He says, note this in verse 3, Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. Many will see what? They will see your songs in the dark. They will hear your worship in the mire. But wait a minute, we don't see singing. We don't see worship. We hear it, right? Yeah, but we do see the singer. We see the worshiper. We see the one who is offering praise. And when people see you singing, even of of rescue, when you're bogged down, the Bible says it has this effect. Many will fear and will trust in the Lord. They're going to see what's going on. They will watch you. They'll see in your life how you respond, how you're trusting God. And, And they will be the ones who say, I don't even know why you believe in anything with what's going on with you. How can you trust? It's like Job's wife. Curse God and die. (laughs) She could see nothing good. Job continued to have faith. She couldn't see it. (laughs) I know she sounded like that. (laughs) At least to Job. (laughs) But people see, and many then will fear and will trust in the Lord. You know, a great example of that is Paul and Silas singing in the bowels of, of a Philippian jail. Down there in the midst, in the dark of night, you you know the story. Acts chapter 16, let me read it to you again. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to him, or to them. Which, by the way, is always the way it is. The prisoners, the captives of the enemy, sinners and lost people are listening. They are paying attention when you praise the Lord, even from prison. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he threw his, drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Listen, he called for lights and he rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Many will fear and will trust in the Lord, David says. And so we see the application of that, even with Paul and Silas and the jailer and his entire family. Got saved that day. They all got baptized. It's fantastic. And back in the psalm, what, what David is saying, what Paul and Silas proved to be true, is when people see the way a person worships their way through hardship, praising the Lord, then they will fear Him, and they will come to trust Him. That's why Paul said in Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Our first Peter 1 verse 20, Peter said, If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. 
For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. And we're starting to turn a corner here. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the point of your suffering. Jesus is the point of your sorrow. Jesus is the point of your hardship. Listen, verse 4, continuing. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood, which tells us lapsing into falsehood is a thing. More than trusting in the Lord, note he says, those who have made the Lord his trust. You've made the Lord your, He is your trust. Which means that even if problems worsen and troubles go on, our fear of the Lord, our trust in Him can be unshaken because He's our trust. Not our circumstances. Not our, our resolution to problems. No, He is our trust. He's the one we look to. Now, someone might say, well, that sounds like blind faith. Is trusting no matter what happens? Far from it. This is true faith. Making Jesus your trust. Read on verse 5. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done. And your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Stanza number 1 is what I called the wonders that lift. The wonders that lift. He says, many are your wonders, are the wonders you've done and your thoughts toward us. Wonders and thoughts. And here's where our trust is in the Lord because of what He has done and what He will do. His wonders and His thoughts. In the Hebrew, the word for wonders speaks of His past deeds. His wonders are those things that you can consider and think about. The Red Sea. The crossing there. The salvation of Israel out of Egypt. The miracles of Jesus. All the way back to the very creation itself. The wonders of God. We look back and say many are His wonders. Recall those things. Think about those things. Trust in Him because you can see all that He has done across 6,000 years of history. Many are the wonders of God. Uncountable. Don't even have time to begin to go into all of the wonders because we couldn't. There are more than we even know. The wonders, His past deeds, what He's done. But also, note this, and your thoughts toward us. Thoughts is literally intentions. Your intentions, your plans. Same exact word is used in Jeremiah 29 verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. What are you saying, Rick? Listen, David remembers the past is full of God's wonders and he recognizes the future is filled with God's plans and intentions. Either way you look. And what does that tell us about our present troubles? They are sandwiched in between God's past wonders and God's future intentions. Where I sit today with this issue or that issue, this pain or problem or even persecution, whatever has me wedged in, guess what? What I'm really wedged in between is the wonders of God past and His intentions for me future. When you're stuck in the mud and the mire... That's what you're really stuck in between. That's where you truly stand. And remember this as you look to the wonders past and His good intentions future. Remember that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. So Jesus is in the wonders past. Jesus is in the intentions future. And Jesus is stuck in the mud with you. Because Jesus is today. You cannot turn any direction. When you've given your life to Jesus, you can't turn any direction and He's not there. So as much as we talk about Him being here in the Word and being here in the Psalms, He is here in your life. Don't ever forget that. Don't lose sight of His intimacy with you. 
with me. That's how Paul could write, by the way, Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If you read that superficially, you go, Well, that's great for you, Paul, but my sufferings do compare. No. No, not if you understand the wonders past and the intentions future and His presence right now. Then yeah, any suffering is like, why am I even worried about this suffering? It's a blip on the screen. It's not even a blip. 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul put it this way, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Well, maybe for Paul. No, Paul's life was far worse than the vast majority of any of us. Read about Paul's life. Look at what he went through. He was kicked out of every decent city in the Middle East and in Asia. Booted out everywhere he went. He went into prison. They stoned him numerous times. He was left for dead. He was in shipwrecks. He had long nights of despair. This guy had it hard after he gave his life to Jesus. He was messed up. And praise the Lord through it all. And so he has the right to say, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, temporary. But the things which are not seen, oh, those are eternal. So David's resolve to patient trust develops and flows through these psalms. And suddenly, suddenly now through this first stanza, he's giving his heart, he's declaring his heart. And the Spirit of Christ invades and appropriates the psalm. While I believe David was inspired to write the whole psalm by Jesus, suddenly now Jesus starts to speak. In the second stanza, verses 6 through 10, the word that lives. Verse 6. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. How can we be so sure this is Jesus? I mean, it's nice to say, but how, how do you, what's your proof that now you say Jesus is talking through David in this psalm? How can you know that? Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. And keep your finger there in Psalm 40. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, that is Jesus, when Jesus comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. So the Hebrew pastor speaks very clearly what, by the way, rabbis taught in the first century. That Messiah is the one speaking those words. That Messiah is the one who says, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. They look at the Psalm of David, and even the non-believing, non-Christian, non-Jesus-following rabbis would teach at the time, Well, that's, that's Messiah. And now the Hebrew pastor says, absolutely, that's Messiah. That's Jesus speaking when he came into the world. This is what he was saying on the way in. Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It's written of me to do your will, O God. But if you were paying close attention, you may have noticed a slight difference between Psalm 40, verse 10 and Hebrews or Psalm 40, verse 7 and Hebrews 10, verse 7. These two parallel verses. See, in Psalm 40, Back in verse 6, it says, My ears you have opened. But then in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, it reads, A body you have prepared for me. Well, which is it? My ears you have opened, or a body you have prepared. Which one is right? Both. I mean, it really depends on the, the manuscript that you're using. 
The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures written about 280 years B.C., translated at that that time, says specifically, a body you have prepared for me. That's why you see it written that way in Hebrews chapter 10 in the New Testament, because the New Testament primarily quotes from the Septuagint translation. So a body you have prepared for me. That's how it was translated from Hebrew to Greek. And that's how we see it in Hebrews chapter 10. And yet, Psalm 40 verse 6 says, My ears you have opened. And that's from the Masoretic text, which came later, actually came about six, eight hundred years after Christ. And that's confusing for some people. And they would say, well, see, that's, that's why I don't believe in the Bible, because you've got these various translations. And listen, for one thing, the differences are minute when you do see them. But between the two texts, the Septuagint and the Masoretic, the Septuagint, while not being Hebrew, it's Greek from Hebrew, is older, and I think probably more accurate than the Masoretic text. But the Masoretic text is what all of our Hebrew Bibles is taken from. So that's why you'll see occasionally slight differences. But get this, understand, the Jewish mindset, the Hebrew thinkers who made that translation, they could be translated, my ears you have dug, or a body you have prepared for me. And that doesn't mean that, you know, you're somewhere in the, in the 70s and someone walks up and they've got a cool earring and you go, hey, <laughs> I really dug that. <laughs> My ears you have dug, you have digged, is, is what it says in Hebrew, which then can literally translate to a body you have prepared. How, how can it do that? Because whether it's ear or body, ear is a part of the whole. The idea is you created in me... The ability to obey. That's what's being said here. You created in me, whether it's an ear or your entire body, you were created then to obey the Lord. The language portrays God's creative work. He made you for a The reason He gave you ears was to hear. Which is why we see seven times in the churches in the Revelation, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. You were given ears for that purpose, to listen to the Lord. You were given a body for this purpose, prepared to serve Him. That's why we were created. Ears you have dug for me. I mean, picture God with a little auger digging out ear holes. <laughs> That's the idea there. It's like I've, I've shared with you, I know before, my, my grandmother Irene, who, who went home with Jesus uh, in 1999, but she used to always say that she could remember all the way back to the womb when God said, hold still, Irene, while I put your eyes in. <laughs> it's ears, it's eyes, it's hands, it's feet, it's a body. He prepared a body for Jesus. And so we see that translation in Hebrews 10 verse 5, a body you have prepared for me, ears to hear and obey, a body in obedience to respond. And Isaiah chapter 50 verse 4 says, He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. And by the way, that is also a messianic song. In Isaiah chapter 50, it's one of the Savior songs of Isaiah. So Jesus saying, the Lord has opened my ear as a disciple. I listen as a disciple. And by the way, speaking of ears, the word opened. You have dug for me. You have opened it. You've opened my ear. Back in Psalm 40, the word opened is karita. To dig out, to make, or or it can be translated to pierce. To pierce. Okay, what does the Bible teach about piercings? Let's just get this out on the table. In Israel, the idea of a pierced ear had nothing to do with a fashion statement. It was a slave statement. If your ear was pierced, everybody knew you belonged to somebody else. You did not belong to yourself. You were an absolutely indentured, pierced servant. 
Now, in Hebrew law, every Hebrew slave or indentured servant was set free after six years. You, you worked for six years, even if you were paying a debt. At the end of six years, you, by law, had to be set free in the seventh year with one exception. Exodus 21, verse 5, if the slave plainly says, I love my master and my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God. He shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. What happened at the door and the doorpost? Anyone remember? The blood of the Passover was wiped on the door and on the lintel. Bring him to the door. Bring him to the place that the blood was spread. Bring him to the door of the doorpost and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he will serve him permanently. What's the point? The body prepared for Jesus was made to be pierced. That's why the body was prepared. That's why it works either way. You have opened my, you have pierced my ear like an indentured servant. You have prepared my body to be pierced. Psalm 22, 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. Isaiah 53, verse 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, they will look on me whom they have pierced. All three prophetic Hebrew scriptures speaking of what happened to Jesus on the cross. And John quotes Zechariah saying they will look on me whom they have pierced. John chapter 19, verse 36 and 37. He quotes that of Jesus Christ crucified. Why? Because in the scroll of the book, it is written of him. He came to be pierced. The Hebrew prophets confirm it. Jesus did it. And what we see cover to cover, beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, is Jesus Christ pierced for you and for me. And Kyle and Delich said the words of David, the anointed one, are so molded by the Holy Spirit, the spirit of prophecy, that they sound at the same time like the words of the second David, that is Jesus Passing through suffering to glory, whose offering up of himself is the close of the animal sacrifices, the end of the sacrifices, and whose person and work are the very kernel and star of the scroll of the law. It's all about Jesus. Now, staying in Hebrews chapter 10, look a little further as the Hebrew pastor applies this further. He says, after saying above sacrifices and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor you have taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first, that is the old law, in order to establish the second, that is the new covenant in his blood. Verse 10, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The will of God. I have come according to your will. I have come in obedience to your will. To do your will. That's why I came into the world, Jesus would say. Jesus chose the affliction of crucifixion in pure obedience to the will of the Father. To save and to sanctify whatever your circumstance is right now. And you may not have chosen your circumstance. Jesus did choose His. You, not, you may not have chosen to be in a pit. Jesus did And by the way, we'll come to that later in the summer, the psalm of the pit, which describes Jesus in a holding cell right before his crucifixion. You may not have chosen it. He did choose it. Why would anyone choose that for you and for me? He chose his miry clay. He chose his muddy bog. He chose to be stuck to the cross. So that whether we have chosen our circumstance or not, He may show His wonders before. He may speak His intentions to come. And He may be present with us in that place. So again, it's past wonders, it's future intentions, and it's present sanctification that He's doing in us right now. Back to Psalm 40. He continues speaking, that is the Spirit of Christ in verse 9, saying, I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know. 
I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness, of your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. Note this, ever since his ascension and resurrection, resurrection and ascension, this is what Jesus has been up to. Verses 9 and 10. Proclaiming God's righteousness, declaring God's faithfulness and His holiness in the great congregation, to the great congregation, to anyone who has ears to hear. This is how Jesus has been spending the last 2,000 years. Speaking to and through and inspiring His people with all the truths of God. And note this in verse 10, I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth. Loving kindness is grace. Hesed in the Hebrew. I have not concealed your grace and your truth. Your grace and your truth. That's Jesus, man. What do you mean? John 1.17 The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ. I didn't, I didn't count it up. Do you even know how many times the Hebrew Scriptures, specifically in the Psalms, refer to the loving kindness and truth of God? The grace and truth. And Jesus comes along and He is grace and truth. Personified. Prophesied. And then personified in Jesus the loving kindness and the grace of God. Now we come to the third stanza. And it reads as if David is responding to this remarkable revelation of Messiah. As you and I can respond. Verse 11. You, O Lord, will not withhold from me your compassion, your grace, and your truth will continually preserve me. He responds to the declaration of Christ as, as Jesus breaks in. And it really does read this way. That's the sense. David's talking. He's praying. He's declaring. Suddenly Jesus breaks in, says what he says. And now David responds to this. You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. And your grace, your loving kindness, your truth will continually preserve me. Stanza number three is what I call the waiting to last. The waiting to last. If you want a longer name for the stanza, you could say for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, for in sickness and in health, till death or rapture do us come together forever. You see, we may wait for now, but the result of our waiting will last forever. The waiting that lasts. The waiting for an eternal resolve. Watch this, get this, this is so relevant. This is so real to life. That's why so many turn to the psalm, because David just puts it out there, man. The conditions of David's trouble come right back to him, and he declares them in verse 12. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head and my heart has failed me. Ever been there? You show up. You're in worship. You're having a bad week or month or season. But you get yourself up anyway. And you get yourself to church. And you're around other believers. And the worship just happens to be really good that morning. It's always good, Rachel. But it was really good that morning. And so your heart is lifted up and you're encouraged. And the Word touched you. And you walk out the door. Take a deep breath. And the sun is shining. And you get in your car and you drive about two miles. And all of a sudden, all that you had left behind comes rushing back into your head. Oh yeah. I'm still in the mess. Felt good there for an hour or two. But I'm still in the mess. That's David. In fact, some might read verse 12 and go, uh-oh, he's headed right back down into the pit. <laughs> Hold on there, Debbie Downer. Read verse 13. <laughs> Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. And let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. I like that about David. He has no problem calling out his enemies. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help 
and my deliverer. Do not delay, O God. David says, you know what? Yeah, I'm still in the pit. I recognize God. I declare God. You gave me praise. You you lifted me up, but I'm still stuck here. And David says, all I really need to know is that you are mindful of me, Lord. Remind me that you remember me. You see, the Bible pulls no punches with our, with our pain, with our hardship. And I want you to get this, so listen closely. You can belong to God and be presently afflicted at the same time. Doesn't seem like that big a thought, but we don't always think so. You can, listen, you can be a man or a woman of great faith and still be stuck in the mud experiencing great need. The one doesn't preclude the other. You can absolutely trust in God and have trusted in God with your life and go straight down into the mud. Be stuck in the pit. Be surrounded by trial or struggling with disease or illness. See, this is Christians who who get sick and wonder, God, how can you do this to me? Hey, wait a minute. Nothing's changed in your spirit. Nothing's changed in the love of God for you. The question is, do you recognize that in your faith? Why is all of this happening to me? That's a fair question to ask. Turn it to the Lord. Ask it to the Lord. Seek the Lord in it. But understand that simply because you're going through hard times or pain or illness does not mean that it's because, well, your faith is just not what it should be. Your belief, just if you only believe more, see, that ticks me off. And I'm being honest with you here. It ticks me off when faith-only people come along and they tell you, you don't have enough faith, that's why you're still sick. You know what I say to that? Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Shame on you for telling a fellow follower of Jesus Christ that you just don't have enough faith. How dare you? How dare any of us ever make a statement like that? If we have read our Bibles and know how it works, you can have immense faith and still be going through immense pain. Why? It's the human condition. It is the state of the world, and it is the fact that we are in corrupt bodies, though our spirits are incorruptible in Jesus Christ, our flesh is corrupted. The Lord dealt with Jeremiah this way. Think You want to talk about a man of faith? Look at Jeremiah the prophet, who trusted God with his life, who spoke only what God told him to speak, even though every time he did, he got in trouble. Every time he did, the people spurned him, made fun of him. You know, oh, here comes Jer- talk about a Debbie Downer. Here comes Jeremiah. <laughs> they didn't listen. And all the other prophets at the time, and this is right before the fall of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is the only prophet prophesying, hey, Jerusalem's going down. It's going to fall. And all the other prophets in Jerusalem, no, no, we have the temple of the Lord. It's good. God's got us. We're his people, man. He doesn't let anything ha- bad happen to his people, right? And Jeremiah's saying, it's not going to be good. The Lord's telling me, the Lord won't even let me pray for you. <laughs> Jeremiah 7, look it up. God tells him to stop praying for the people. But people will even ascribe Psalm 40 to Jeremiah because he talks about being stuck in the pit of destruction. He brought me up out of the miry clay. Well, that exact thing happened to Jeremiah. Now, the psalm is pretty clearly David, but talk about a life that's in the pits. Jeremiah chapter 38, verse 6, they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Melchizedek, the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes, and in the cistern there was no water but only mud, and Jeremiah sank into the mud. And I don't know this for certain, but I have a feeling that Jeremiah sinking into the mud was going, what a picture of my life. (laughs) Might as well be sinking in the mud because that's what the last several years have been. And what happened? The Lord rescued Jeremiah out of the pit. The Lord had him drawn out. He also, by the way, rescued Jeremiah uniquely out of the hands of Babylon because Jeremiah was faithful. 
you may not be healed of the disease. It may take your physical life. The conditions may seemingly not get better. And David seems to recognize and understand that. Jeremiah was still called the weeping prophet because his life was in the prophetic pit. But this is the point. It's not the circumstances of life that show your faith. It's how your faith deals with the circumstances of life. Romans 8.35, Paul said, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, Paul writes, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Look back at verse 3 of Psalm 40. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust. You sing the new song. Even when your life is bogged down, you sing the new song. You trust the Lord. He is your trust. And you trust that what's happening is He's sanctifying you in the present because you know His wonders past and you are aware of His intentions to come. You know He's there with you. So last thought for this morning. Followers of Jesus. You know who He is. He's the author and finisher of our faith. Right? So if He's the author and finisher of our faith, what does that make you? What does that make me? We are scrolls. We're scrolls. We're books. And in the scroll of the book, Jesus says, it is written of me. Proverbs 3, verse 3, Do not let grace and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3, You are a letter of Christ, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Hebrews 10, verse 16, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. And Psalm 40, verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. Is it written of Jesus in the scroll of the book? Your book, your life, your heart. Is it written of Jesus for people to read? And when people read you, do they read obedient? Do they read bondservant? Do they read follower of Jesus Christ? Will they see and fear and trust the Lord? Because He's the Savior in the scroll. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this psalm and thank You, Jesus, for speaking right through David, right onto the page. Thank You for the declaration of Your coming, for making us aware once again that You came to be pierced. You came to be sacrificed. You came literally to go into the pit. And Lord, we are amazed. And so we declare this morning Your wonders and all You have done and accomplished, all that needs to be done or accomplished. And we recognize through the song and through Your Word, Your intentions to bring us home. And so, here in the now, Lord, I just lift up a prayer for my brothers and our sisters who are really struggling this morning. I pray for those who are truly hurting. I pray for those who wonder, truly, as Job wondered about his own life. What have I done? How can I be here? Lord, may we, as David, choose to turn to You. And I pray for the increase of faith that will allow us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, that You might author us, Lord, and finish writing on the scrolls of our hearts Your intentions for us in days to come. And Lord, we pray for healing. Oh Lord, we we pray for deliverance as David did. I ask not knowing all the intricacies of all the lives present this morning. I, I ask, Lord, for your deliverance and your healing and your wonders to be done. 
I, I pray that you will lift us up out of the miry clay. But, Lord Jesus, whether or not you do, I pray that you will turn our trust to you. In Jesus' most holy name, amen. You want enlightenment? It comes of knowing Jesus. And if you've never given your heart to Him, if you've never decided just to follow Him, I invite you to do that, to come and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior this morning by praying with one of my brothers or sisters. And if you've done that and you've been struggling, you want to pray, let's pray. Let's cry out to Him. And let's see what He has planned for you. If you want to get baptized, we can do that right now or we're going to do them during the picnic at some point anyway. But I just invite you to come to Jesus. Won't you come? Let's stand together and sing to Him.